When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, how's it going? This is Matt here from Silver Fortune. This is my weekly wrap-up video. I have a, a few different topics that I find to be interesting, newsworthy, that, that I kind of want to go into to more depth than today. So we'll get to some of those in a second, including uh, some of the recent price action in the metals markets. But I wanted to start with the one that I talked about in the title of this video, and that is the manipulation in the precious metals markets. Now, this is an article from Kitco written by Niels Christensen. Six years of gold market spoofing results in $25 million fine. Now, of course, this title is almost written tongue-in-cheek because $25 million fine for, again, six years of gold market spoofing is not that big of a deal, especially when you go on to learn that the the enterprise or that the company that was fined was Merrill Lynch Commodities, which is a division of Merrill Lynch, which is a division of Bank of America. You know, we're talking about one of the largest banks in not only the United States, but the world being fined $25 million for market manipulation. And so the idea behind this spoofing, he actually does a you know real quick, succinct explanation of it. Basically, to sum it up, it's when you, he puts it here, placing orders to buy and sell with the intent to cancel the orders before execution. But basically what spoofing does is when you, the, the appearance of those orders can move markets, or even as I talked about in this this uh, electronic chat from 2010, quote, guys, the algos are really geared up in here. If you spoof this, it really moves, meaning the algorithms are looking for a direction in the market, and by placing an order that you don't actually intend on filling, but but to, to spoof the market, you're going to cause this to move. Now, you know, immediately some people are going to say, like, this isn't... There, there's two camps, and I don't fall into either of these camps necessarily, that manipulation is responsible for every single market action on the gold and silver market, and that's, I don't think, the case. But then there's the other camp that says, well, this is minor, that gold and silver are priced where they should be, that this doesn't necessarily mean they've been manipulating the price or that they've been suppressing the price. And and I don't really fall into that camp either. In fact, you know, I think that the best way that I've heard it put is is not just manipulation, but more so management. I think it's that's a term that uh, uh, I forget his name off the top of my head now. Um, Turd Ferguson, uh, um, Craig Hemke from from TF Metals Report. Uh, that's the way he describes it. Is is not just manipulation, but but management, right? And and it's really evident. For instance, if we look at this uh, long term chart of gold, we will go back five years. Uh, so you're looking at the gold line here, where gold was basically managed in uh, a few hundred dollar, you know, uh, spread from from the very lows here, about a thousand and fifty dollars, but for the most part above that, and the highs being around thirteen hundred fifty, right, about three hundred dollar range, managed, right. Now obviously that can change, um, but but a similar story for silver, right? You see it, for instance, right here. Uh, I remember this time span right here was was a bit aggravating at times where we see silver managed between, uh, I think it was 17 and $16 an ounce, uh, almost perfectly for like uh, a couple months, right? Um, and oftentimes that's what they do. So, so I mean, the way that they make money on that is, you know, when it gets close to that resistance level, they then, you know, use various manipulative tools, spoofing and others to force a price down, 
and oftentimes they'll profit off of that. They already have a short position or something along those lines. And so uh, management, but, but then, you know, it goes much deeper than that. I mean, management of a market like the gold market is, is huge in, in uh, uh, maintaining a low level of interest in the market, right? When you see gold hit this resistance level uh, one time, two times, three, four, five, six, seven, you know, on and on and on. And this is kind of just one top right here. But, but when you see that over and over again, I think it, it, it develops a lot of cynicism, right? That, that that's a very strong resistance. And so you see shorts come into the market at those times and you see um, just not a whole lot of enthusiasm for gold to go up significantly. And the same case is true for, for silver, right? If you're managing the price, you're also managing expectations, you're managing sentiment, etc. And those are very important factors in these markets, which let's not forget, do um, look at things like like inflation or monetary policy or some of those bigger picture safe haven reasons to get into silver and gold. Uh, but but if gold is, is not following those indicators whatsoever over the long term because it's being managed by, by a major bank or major banks, then again, that's going to change perception of this market, changes perception for buyers like you and I, right? How many people have you seen comment with something along the lines of, Silver and or gold are just in a funk. They have been for like five years now. Why am I still owning this? Why am I still holding this metal? It's 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 never going to go up. Um, how many people have looked at that? Have looked at silver and gold? Have seen charts like this? You know, maybe minus this big run up recently by gold, and say, why would I want to get into this market? Right? I hear people saying that this this keeps pace with inflation, but but it's been sideways for like five years, and in the meantime, we've experienced you know officially like what maybe eight percent inflation or something like that over the five years, but unofficially probably much much higher than that. Why would I get into an asset that's not even following the inflation? Right, this price management scheme is incredibly important to, I guess, uh, uh, stopping significant interest or momentum in the precious metals markets. And it's done by these bullion banks, by these huge uh, institutions that you know control these paper markets. I mean, I don't want to just turn this into a rant about paper markets and paper markets, but that's that's really the, the, the heart of the issue here is that we have these physical commodities that are being traded on a paper market where, where the physical doesn't really matter, right? You can rehypothecate ounces. You can you can drop basically paper contracts out of nowhere to to make a profit, but also to, to move the price of the metals, and it has little to no impact or correlation to the actual physical supply and demand market. It's silly, um, and yet it's it's what we have for silver and gold these days, and and it's going to change. Obviously, right? I'm this is not being being cynical necessarily this is just me talking real right here like this is the reality obviously it's going to change i mean otherwise i would probably be in that camp of those people that say like why why would i get into this if it's always going to be this way well you know it's it's not always going to be this way at some point the physical market is going to win out but for the time being you know that's certainly the reality that that we have to deal with right spoofing manipulation and management now i want to get into some of the recent price action now <laughs> Some of you guys are going to say it's silly to talk about price after you just talk about manipulation. But, you know, I'm going to anyways because, as I said before, I don't fall into that camp of saying every little thing is manipulation, right? There is manipulation, absolutely. But I think that doesn't rule out any sort of analysis. So this is a one-month chart, chart over the one last month uh, in the silver and gold markets. And as you can see, it's been a pretty good story. I mean, uh, now, now, 
I want to get into the gold to silver ratio here in a bit, but but real quickly, I just want to point out that yes, silver hasn't been doing as well as we'd like. Uh, it's certain it's like 92, 93 to one right now the ratio. But you know, if you go back to a month ago, it was we were talking numbers fourteen thirty. 1440 an ounce, and, and now we're talking 1530 an ounce. So, so it's a decent move up, but certainly gold has really stolen the show here. Uh, gold up, um, you know, of course you can see it here breaking through that key resistance level with the Fed announcement, um, topping out, you know, close to or around $1,440 an ounce. In fact, if you zoom in here a bit over the last couple days, last week or so, uh, gold's actually formed a pretty decent. Uh, support level, I think, around fourteen hundred dollars an ounce. There's been a couple times here where it's it's been crashing. You can see right here, moving down very quickly, and yet it finds support just north of fourteen hundred, finding support here just around fourteen hundred, and that's very positive. We had a bit of a move up yesterday and overnight up to around fourteen twenty. Currently fourteen eleven, which you know compared to uh, I think weekly close. I'm re I'm recording this video about. You know, it's 11.33 a.m. Central Time, so a couple hours before market close. But we're talking about a full $10 above market close last week, which is, I mean, not that bad. I mean, especially considering that's hanging on to these levels. Hanging on to that, I think that $1,400 handle is is a big deal, right? And and I think that support level there is, is very positive. Um, now, part of this goes back to the Fed and, and their... Uh, can, Continuing plan to to uh, you know, ease monetary policy, or at least the market's expectations of that. I mean, right now they're the market's pricing in basically a hundred percent chance of a rate cut in July, um, and basically there's a good chance of a rate cut every meeting thereafter through the end of the year. We're talking about a full you know percentage uh, cut in the Fed funds rate by the end of the year, um, and and it's crazy to think of that. I mean, on one hand, it's preposterous. I mean, we. Uh, I want to talk about the S&P here in a second, but, but I mean, look at the S&P. I mean, we're we're just shy of all-time highs, right? Um, the markets or, or the, the economy, you know, if you look at GDP numbers, supposedly is not doing that bad now. I think it's actually doing much, much worse, and a lot of this data is really rolling over. But but it's it's crazy. But then on the other hand, it makes total sense, right? That the that the Fed would try their very best to, to keep this um, keep this rally alive, keep this expansion if you want to call it that, continuing for as long as possible because when it does come down, it's going to be bad, right? There's there's going to be, it, I don't want to get into exactly what it's going to be like, but but it's going to be bad. And, and the Fed, you know, the end result of it is they're going to lose a lot of, I think, legitimacy, right? People are going to say, you know, you did how many trillion dollars worth of quantitative easing? You kept interest rates at zero or close to zero for how long? And you only raised rates how far? And we're still having another major recession and or financial crisis. Like, what's what's the deal here? Um, faith in central banks as a whole is going to be lost, I think. Right? Not by everyone, but there's going to be more and more people that realize that, hey, the ECB, the Bank of Japan, they have basically no tools left that are going to work well, right? They're, they're going to have to resort to, to more and more drastic measures, right? Like buying corporate debt, buying stocks, buying... Um, whatever assets, uh, helicopter money, right? Giving money to the masses, right? The Fed's going to be stuck in that same trap, right? People are going to realize that this, this, the central banks, they, they have their their mo is to ease, right? Take the easy way out over the short term, and and maybe hopefully not 
in, in their minds, but pay the price at some point in the future. Well, eventually that future is going to be now. And, and, and it's, there's going to be huge reversals in the stock market. The bond market's the one that I'm really watching, but also precious metals, right? There's going to be a lot of people that realize, hey, the stock market, it depends on the Fed and the Bank of Japan and the ECB, and they, they've now lost their legitimacy. And, you know, these trends of, of the market always going up is it's going to reverse. You know, you see articles of, of people saying, you know, a 40% correction. That was one that I recently saw in Zero Hedge. 40% correction in the stock market. Sounds crazy, right? December was 20%. And we had Mnuchin coming out and saying, hey, the plunge protection team's got this. Like, no, no need to worry and stuff. Uh, imagine double that. I mean, I think it gets exponentially worse as you go beyond 20% to 25 to 30 to 35 to 40 or even beyond. Uh, a 40% crash in the S&P. I mean, a 50% crash, I'll remind you, would be taking the S&P to, you know, below 1,500 right now. So 40% would be below 2,000. The, the, the effect that that would have on things like consumer confidence, the amount of money that people are willing to spend, because a lot of times it's based on how large or how, how well their portfolio is doing in the stock market, um, how much that would damage pension funds. I mean, it is going to be bad. And that's why the Fed is going to try and keep this going as long as possible. And they have a little bit more room to maneuver than some of these other central banks. But it is uncomfortably thin margin that, of, of error that they have right now, um, considering they needed a full five percentage point rate cut in 2008 and in 2009 and, and the financial crisis and the Great Recession, along with a few trillion dollars worth of QE over the next couple of years to stabilize that. Right now, they have about half that in interest rates to, to cut, to, to get to zero. They can go negative if they want and in terms of qe they haven't even unwound what they did last time right they just unwound a small portion of it and so it's gonna be bad but but i think that's just an un, uh, uh maybe a um broad generalization and, and probably an understatement of how bad it's going to be now i want to talk about the s p here uh and how toppy maybe it's looking you know we're looking at what like a, a triple top here um going back to you know this is a one-year chart so this would go back to um, now, if we look at a five-year chart, you get pretty close to another top here at the beginning of 2018 before that uh, volatility explosion, but but pretty close to a triple top here over the last year. And and yeah, it could go higher, right? If, if, if uh, these G20 talks come out and, and the, uh, the, the trade deal goes through and whatnot, then yeah, the market could go higher. That could actually give a bit of repeat, reprieve for the economy for the time being. Uh, but, but I don't even think that's a win-win for, for every, so, so what I'm thinking here is that, okay, let's say the Fed comes out or, or sorry, U.S. and China come out from this G20 meeting and over the next week or two or, or right after the meeting, they say the deal's done. We got it figured out, right? Okay, great. But what about the Fed, right? If anything, that's going to bias the Fed towards less easing, right? Because a big argument for the Fed easing in the first place has been the trade deal. Right? And so that's not a win-win. That's a win-lose because now you have the, the, the tailwind potentially of the trade deal, right? all those tariffs taken off and, and whatnot and, and consumer and business sentiment improving. But then you have the Fed maybe only cutting once or twice. Maybe, right? Or you know, the, the alternative is that the, <laughs> the, the, the trade talks don't go through, that they continue to stall or, or get worse. And then the Fed cuts and, and that's a... That's not a win-win either, right? Because the the trade 
war would be continuing. And that's obviously not a positive for either economy or for the global economy. But the Fed would be cutting rates too, which, hey, can perform or can provide a bit of a, a short-term stimulus. But there's been some quite a few people that have realized that, hey, uh, last couple of times the Fed cut rates, it's marked the beginning of a recession, right? That was the case for 2000, 2001. That was the case for the Great Recession. Uh, what if it's the case for this time around? In fact, the last time that it wasn't the case was like the mid-90s, right? Otherwise, uh, I think in post, what was it, post-World War II era, I can't remember what it was quoted, that that of all the times the Fed have cut rates, there's only been twice, two times that it hasn't signaled an independent recession. And and I think the situation in the mid-90s is, is vastly different than what we're dealing with in 2019. So so that's not a positive either, right? That just provides a, a short-term stimulus. But but we know that if we're heading for a recession that is anywhere on the scale of, of the Great Recession, that the Fed's going to need to cut rates more than just one or two or two and a half percentage points, right? They're going to have to go much, much further than that. So this this goes to a, an article right here that I, I brought up from, from Zero Hedge Goldman. Goldman Sachs obviously warns risk of market crash is highest since the financial crisis, nearing 60%. Now, this is purely based on equity valuations and U.S. growth drawdown risk, which uh, is the highest since the, the great financial crisis, the, the risk of, of um, a S&P 500 10% drawdown in the next 12 months, right? I mean, look at that. I mean, that's that's very high. I mean, how many other times has it spiked that high and it hasn't led to a 10% drawdown? I mean, you can look at this chart here. It's, it doesn't happen very often. I mean, you have to go back to the early 90s maybe, right? Uh, it, it, this chart's moving up very rapidly. And, that you, and yet you have a large amount of people moving into this market and, and, and still buying stocks at or around all-time highs. And and I think at some point maybe they're overestimating. I mean, what, what happens if, if this G20 trade deal comes out and 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 it looks like a win, and the market rallies on that. Confidence improves for a bit, and the Fed, Fed cuts rates maybe once or twice this year. And everybody everybody thinks it's great, but but how long does that high last? I mean, a month maybe before people realize, hey, these fundamentals in the economy they're not improving at all, right? That that trade deal actually didn't do a whole lot. Like maybe this this strong economic growth going back to twenty eighteen does have a lot to do with just the Trump tax cuts and that the the stimulus of that is slowly wearing off, right? What then? The other thing I want to talk about, I'll just go back to this chart of precious metals for you guys to watch for a couple minutes here, is is the situation in Iran. Real quick, you know, I did talk about the gold to silver ratio a bit here uh, just because I have it on screen here. Still high, doesn't bother me a whole lot. 93 to 1, I think was a high, over 93 to 1, which is crazy. I mean, you have to go back to the 90s to, to find the last time the the ratio was that high, the, the early 90s. But uh, it's, you know, silver continues to be managed and, and gold is managed at a higher price, right? That's another way that Craig Hemke put it is, hey, uh, gold can still be managed just at a different range, right? Maybe now it's going to be from 14 to, to 1600, right? Um, anyways, going back to what I was saying about Iran is, is you know, it's Friday, the 28th, it was last Thursday, I think, that news came out of this big um, this big event of, of the Iran shooting down the U.S. drone that was flying in or near their airspace, depending on who you believe or who you listen to. And then it was later that night or the next day that, that this uh, reported um, counter-strike, this, this strike from the United States was in the works. 
and about to be launched before Trump called it off because of the loss of life. Basically, I, I, saw, I saw it as him extending a hand towards the Iranians and saying, I don't want to escalate this right now. Uh, the Iranians kind of, but didn't really reciprocate those types of feelings. The, the Obviously, the, the strike wasn't launched. The attack wasn't launched. But we still had Trump throw on some more sanctions on Monday. And, and yet, you know, it's about a week out from this news item, which is huge, right? A war with Iran would be maybe the biggest war that the U.S. has fought since probably the Vietnam War. Right, and and it, have, it would have the potential of being the biggest war since World War II, depending on how many people get involved and whatnot. Uh, and yet, people have kind of forgotten about it already by this Friday, right? Much of the mainstream media. I mean, Google Iran. You, you don't get a whole lot of recent uh, results, except for a bit about you know the nuclear deal, a bit about sanctions, a bit about the G20 meeting. Now, my perspective on it is that this this problem with Iran is not going away. Okay, I think the truth of the matter is that there, people can draw some parallels, and I think there are some parallels between Iran and North Korea. But, but I don't think Iran is going to uh, sit back and maybe be passive as long as, as North Korea has been in terms of, of just dealing with sanctions. Right? Iran is not going to deal with that. Iran, Iran is experiencing significant economic pain with these recent sanctions which basically have cut off their, their lifeblood, their lifeline, and that is oil, right? They're, they're, they're going to find a way to sell some oil, but it's going to be much more difficult and much probably a smaller quantity than they would have otherwise. That's led to high inflation. That's led to uh, a major drop in economic activity. It, it's bad, okay? But from from what I understand and from what I've heard, I'm, I'm no Iran, Iranian expert. I'm not... Uh, uh, I. No, not a whole lot about their culture. I'll be the first one to say that. I don't know Iranian individuals or anything like that. But from what I've heard from people that you know are in in that camp, or reporters that are from there, right? I was listening to I think it was a Bloomberg uh, correspondent the other day talking on on BBC about this, and she's basically saying, "Look, like, yeah, this this economic uh, um, ruin or this economic pain that they're feeling in Iran right now is this big deal for the people, but." The U.S. is getting. I think we're we're banking on the fact that the people are going to see this and say, "This is your fault, not to the United States, but to the Iranian regime." And yet, what it sounds like is that's not really happening. A lot of people are realizing that, hey, this is the U.S. This is the West, right? They've been dealing with this for for decades, right? Going back to to the U.S. support of the Iraqi regime uh, during the Iran Iraqi War, right? Going back to the um, uh, the events that that you you know transpired in in the late seventies, early eighties during the Carter and Reagan administration, right? Be, be, people in Iran don't have as maybe short term of a memory as the the U.S. media, right? And so yeah, they they see this as U.S. right imposing these sanctions on on Iran for for what? I mean, U.S. in many ways has acted in very contradictory ways. We're imposing these massive sanctions, putting us on the brink of war, which, by the way, most people, I think, in, in, in Iran probably view this as an act of war, right? I mean, what is it? Is it all that different from a, from a straight-up blockade? I mean, the, yeah, there's some functional differences. But we're basically saying, like, nobody can buy your oil, right, which is the, the key contributor to the Iranian economy. And, and their sympathy 
for for our case hasn't improved. It's not like suddenly the Iranian people are going to rise up. Like yeah, there's there's going to be components. There's going to be parts of the Iranian uh, population that is already dissident, right? And there's going to be a push, I'm sure, from U.S., Saudi, Israeli, etc. Uh, uh, um, proxies and or um, organizations to, to try and cause some sort of an uprising or rebellion. But but a regime change like that is unlikely to happen in Iran right now. And and as these sanctions and as this pressure continues to be ratcheted up on Iran, we can expect more of what what happened a week ago and, and the week prior with the tanker attacks and with, now who knows who the tanker attacks, who actually did those, but certainly with, with a drone attack. Right, uh, we can expect more provocation from the Houthi rebels in in Yemen. I'm, I'm talking missile strikes on places like Riyadh and, and in other major Saudi places. Right, we can expect more disruption in the Hormuz Strait. We can expect uh, more, you know, huge potential for more escalation between the U.S. and Iran. And the truth of the matter is that if this turns into a hot war, this is not a war. I think of of winners and losers. I think. I, Will the U.S. win? Probably, yeah. Unless this turns into a major global conflict, in which case it, it really wouldn't matter. But but we're dealing with you know Russia and and China and all these other you know global powers coming into this uh, uh, conflict. Then then that's a different story. But but if this stays somewhat regional, there's still not winners, right? The U.S. would win, but but the U.S. would be dealt, I think, quite a bit of a blow, both economically because of disruption to the oil supply, um, as well as potentially militarily, right? With, with our number of bases in the region um, and our, our, uh, our naval forces, uh, you know, you, you, you take that and then you look at the Iranians' uh, current weapons in terms of, of submarines, in terms of mines, in terms of abilities to shut down the Hormuz Strait, in terms of, of their intermediate range uh, uh, ballistic missiles, cruise missiles, etc. You know the possibility of a major um, vessel, U.S. vessel going down, or a major attack on a U.S. military base is, is much much higher, right? And and then what? I mean, are, are we going to cripple them and then not go the whole boots on the ground strategy? I mean, good luck with that too. So so I don't I don't see how this ends well, and I really hope for de-escalation in this G20 meeting, but but it's just. Uh, I, I guess my takeaway here is that, that in the last week, much of the mainstream media has forgotten about this, but, but these problems haven't gone away, right? It's only a matter of time before these sanctions once again ratchet up the situation because the, the situation in Iran economically is looking more and more dire. And I don't think we should assume that that's going to lead to rebellion. I think more likely that's going to lead to confrontation between Iran and United States. So as always, I'd like to thank you guys from the bottom of my heart for watching this video, listening to this podcast, and God bless.